Good evening and welcome to our Bible study and as you know we're in the book of Revelation and this evening we're going to look at Revelation verse 11 uh, verse 1 through to verse 6 so let me just read that passage to you as we read it together. I was given a reed, a measuring rod and was told go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshippers there but exclude the outer court do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for forty-two months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for one thousand two hundred and sixty days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth from every kind of plague as often as they want. Oh God, allow his blessings to that reading. Let's just pray together. Father, again, we thank you that we can gather in this way, and we thank you that we can come around your word. And as we do, we just ask your blessing upon us, that you will lead us through it by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this passage, uh, chapter 11, I just want us to deal with the first six verses this evening, and I've sort of titled it Guilt Verified. In our passage last week, John was reminded that the gospel is both bitter and sweet, as he sees the bitter results of sin unfold in his visions. And the Lord knows that this will bring sorrow to John's heart, and that he will struggle to hold back the, the, the tears. Think of this in the light of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23. This is in verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. You see, John is about to see more things that might dishearten and upset him. And because the Lord knows this, he's preparing John to face the bitter truths of final judgment. A judgment that must take place. At the same time, John must not forget the sweetness of the gospel and part of that sweetness is that, yes, the church will suffer, but the final victory is secured. We've mentioned it many times, as we need to in the book of Revelation, as we remind ourselves that Jesus suffered. Now, the prophets foretold this, even though the people in Isaiah's day didn't fully understand it. It still happened, and we know that it did. So, Isaiah 53 uh, well-known passage that we come to and I'm just going to read you verse 10 and 11 this is what Isaiah says yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin he will see his offspring and prolong his days 
and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. I want us to stop for a moment and just have a, a few thoughts about that word justification. We've just read that he will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Justification is a one-time act of God that cannot be rescinded. It's given by the grace of God who forgives the sins of those who put their trust for salvation in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Who then, become, because of, of, of what Jesus has done, they become the righteous ones who are welcomed into God's church. Jesus had to suffer. We looked at this verse from Matthew last week, this verse 31 of chapter 8, when we read, He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. You know, they were the words that Jesus gave to his disciples, and we reminded ourselves last week that they apply to us, because we too, if we trust in Jesus, are his disciples. And these are bittersweet words that become words of comfort. These are the words of Jesus to those who would be his ambassadors on earth. That's important. Again, it's good to go to the dictionary and the word ambassador means an accredited diplomat sent by a state as its permanent representative in a foreign country. And that's who we are. We are his ambassadors. So we come to the point where we look at the fact that God's church is suffering. Now, we know this. We see it every day. We see it on the news. And John knew this. And John, like us, needs to know that it's part of God's plan that the church must suffer. Now, this doesn't mean that we should not pray for the suffering church. Quite the opposite. It means that we do need to pray for the suffering church, for the whole church. This doesn't mean that God is not with the suffering church. It means that God is with them through their suffering, reminding them that they are on the victory side. The words of what we know as the Lord's Prayer comes to mind here. We find that in Matthew chapter 6. It's just words from verse 10 of that passage. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. This is what John sees in his visions. This is what we see in Revelation. God's will on earth and in heaven being done. So we come to that passage we read this evening. Revelation 11. Verse 1 and 2. We can ask the question, what did John do and see? Let's just read it again. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshippers. 
but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Now remember, for us this is symbolic. John is given a reed that was like a measuring rod. He's asked to measure the temple. We might ask, what temple? John also has to measure the worshippers in this temple. Now, is this temple a symbolic depiction of the people of God who are his church? Let's go to the, the New Testament. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians, firstly, chapter 3, verse 16 through to 17. And this is what we read. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? and that God's Spirit lives among you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Pick up those words, that you together are that temple. God's dwelling place on earth, according to the new covenant, are his people. Now, I want us to continue in the New Testament for a moment and just go to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 8. And Peter said this, I should come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they are destined for. Now you notice in uh, chapter 11, we have this reference to the altar. And the altar alludes to the believer being part of the priesthood under the new covenant. That's what we've just seen in, in 1 Peter chapter 2. Revelation 3, that we've already looked at. Remember verse 11 and 12? I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have, so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on them my new name. You see, we know from Revelation that God will safeguard his church forever. So is the measuring of the temple about the Lord's eternal protection of his people. He's surrounded them. He knows them. They are counted. Now John is told not to measure the outer court. We see that in verse 2 of chapter 11. 
measuring the temple is a reassurance to us that our eternal protection from the wrath of God is secured. But until Jesus returns, God's enemies will continue to trample on the church as it suffers at the hands of the nation. Is the outer court here that is left unmeasured a symbol that represents the church age between the ascension of Jesus and his return? The people who, while here on earth, are not given immunity from the dangers of the trials and the tribulations of this world as it suffers we also have mentioned here 42 months. Well, we need to think about this. We need to remember that these figures, these numbers, they, they are symbols, they are figurative, they are telling us something deeper. They're not necessarily literal, but the literal numbers are leaning towards and showing us other things. Now, we need to understand that in the ancient world, they assigned 30 days to each month in its annual calendar. Now, with that basis of calculation, 42 divided by 12 is equal to three and a half years. Now, remember these numbers are not meant to be literal, but they're symbolic. Jesus' ministry on earth, we understand, was a period of about three and a half years. Three and a half years of being rejected by those in authority leading to his death that was followed by his victorious resurrection from death to life. So think about that period. What happened? It's the number 42, symbolic of the days that the church will suffer between his ascension and his return. Is the holy city, the citizens of his kingdom, who while here on earth will suffer. We need to think about these things. So let's go to verse 3 and 6 of chapter 11. And let's consider these two witnesses. And here we have more imagery of the Old Testament allusions to things that have already been said by God, things that people have seen, seeing how God had worked with his people under the Old Covenant. Now let's just read those verses together. Uh, chapter 11, verse 3 through to 6. And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees, and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, we've seen that the ancient world calendar had 42 months. And 42 months is three and a half years, which would equate to... 100 at uh, 1260 days 1260
260 days. This number could be symbolic of the period in which the church will suffer at the hands of the non-believing world. 42 months, each of 30 days, equals 1,260 days. In other words, this could mean that the witnesses would apparently work during the present church age, which ends with the return of Christ. We know from this passage that the two witnesses are dressed in sackcloth, and the image that John sees tells him that they are in mourning. Now, this description, it speaks of their demeanour, that is, their outward behaviour. The things they are saying, the things they are doing, and how they are saying and doing them, not necessarily their clothes. But it speaks of mourning. Let's go to the Sermon on the Mount. We find it in Matthew chapter 5. Verse 4 of that passage tells us that Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, we can find the basis of what we know as the Beatitudes in Isaiah chapter 61. And if you get the chance, go to Isaiah and read through that passage. Isaiah 61 verse 1 and 2. We read this. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captive and release from the darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. You know, in these words at the end of that, little passage that we read, we have the, the bitterness and the sweetness of the, the, the thing that John was called to swallow. It was sweet to his mouth and bitter to his stomach. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Who are those who mourn? Who is Jesus talking about? Who is Isaiah talking about? The truth is that they are those who reveal the ugliness of sin to a world that is being deceived by Satan and they mourn over this, which we as Christians should do. So who are God's two witnesses? Or maybe the question should be, who or what are God's two witnesses to this broken world? When we read in the passage that they are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that have been sent by God and who stand in God's presence. Now let's think about olive trees. The psalmist in Psalm 52 verse 8 personifies olive trees. You see, he refers to himself as being like an olive tree. He's not an olive tree, but he is being like an olive tree. Why does he say that? Well, listen to what he said. He said, but I am like an olive tree, flourishing in the house of God. I trust in God's unfailing love forever and ever. So the psalmist is liking himself to an olive tree because he sees himself as growing in the house of God. And he's growing in trust for God. And he knows that he has the unfailing love of God with him forever. 
John, on the first reader of this letter, letter to Revelation, would see the connection here to the prophet Zachariah's visions. Now, without going through all of that, I just want to share with you one or two thoughts from it. You see, this takes us to his visions, the visions of Zachariah, Zachariah chapter 4, where he, he saw two olive trees that represented two leaders of Israel. Zerubbabel, who was the governor, and Joshua. This isn't Joshua at the Battle of Jericho. This is Joshua, who was the high priest at the time. These two positions, governor and high priest, would become one position in the person of Christ, who is both king and priest, king of kings and priest. So here in Revelation 11, we see that these two witnesses that we are reading about give us a picture of the faithful church as they witness to the one who is both king and priest. The olive tree supplies the olive oil to the lampstand from which the one who is the light of the world shines. This is representative of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 1, way back to the beginning. I'm just going to read to you verses we've looked at already, but I want you to notice the connection here between these verses. Revelation 1 verse 12 and 13, I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Let's move on to verse 19 and 20 of that same chapter. Write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. I remember we said that the seven churches, although they are real and literal, they are representative of the church of God, the universal church of God. Now, when we come to Revelation chapter 5, we read this in verse 10. This is speaking of the church of God. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth forever. And those same words are used again in chapter 11, verse 10. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. You see, the oil speaks of the presence of the Holy Spirit. The lampstand speaks of the presence of Jesus. And as the church, we are not prophets, but we do have a prophetic message to bring to a fallen world. We see this in the words of Revelation 11. 5 through to 6 as we're reminded of the power of God when we recall the ministry of men like Elijah and Moses. We can read about them, Exodus 7 and 1 Kings 18. Well, let's just read verse 5 and 6 of Revelation 11. This is speaking about the witnesses. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from the mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. 
And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Again, we have a lot of imagery here. The true church of God is composed of the faithful saints of the Old Testament under the Old Covenant and the faithful saints of the New Testament including us, under the New Covenant. We have Jew and Gentile, including those from every age, every tribe and nation, who are all one in Christ. How? By the power of his blood shed on Calvary's cross. This is God's universal church. How about this mention of fire? Well, fire speaks of the power of God's word and the announcement of God's judgment. We can go to another prophet, Jeremiah, and we have a similar thing here. Jeremiah 5, verse 14. This is what we read. Therefore, this is what the Lord God Almighty says. Because the people have spoken these words, I will make my words in your mouth a fire. And these people, the wood it consumes. You see, it's not literal fire coming from the mouth. It's the words of God. It's God speaking here, God is speaking through Jeremiah, and he says, I'll make my words in your mouth a fire. And these people, the wood it consumes. We can look at other passages as well to see the imagery here, but let's ask the question now, just for this evening, why two witnesses? Well, again, we come to God's word. According to scripture, two witnesses are required to bring a legal verdict that will result in conviction and judgment. Now these witnesses will present the person of Jesus and the presence of the Holy Spirit in his church that will bring about judgment and condemnation of a world that has rejected God. Scripture is the word of God, so we can go to Old and New Testament. God is speaking through these words. He spoke in Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, and he said, On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a person is to be put to death. But no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. How many witnesses do we have here in Revelation? Two. Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offence they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. How many witnesses to testify against the guilty world? Two. Let's go to the New Testament. Paul's final warning to the church of Corinth. He needed to reprimand them. He needed to call them to book. And in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 1, we read, This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. You can stay in the New Testament and go to 1 Timothy 5, verse 19. This is what Paul said in his letter to Timothy. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is broad by two or three witnesses. We can also come to the words of Jesus. 
when he was asked by the Pharisees and the leaders of his day to confirm the authority that he has to do and say the things that he did and said. You can read about this in John chapter 8. Listen to what we read in verse 17 to 18. In your own law it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for, testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. So what do we have here? Why the two witnesses? The universal church of God is a witness, a witness to the world, a witness to the sweetness of God's saving grace and the bitterness of sin that brings judgment and condemnation to a world that has rejected him. So we can think about these things and maybe read through the passages again. And you probably understand why I title these few verses, Guilt Verified, Case Proved. Let's just pray. Our Father, we thank you again for this short time you spent around your word. We know that we can be confused and we just ask that you will lead our thoughts along the right lines and that through it we'll see more of you and your glory. And our Father, we just ask that you continue to guide us as we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.